Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here, episode 3. 06 306 Thursday August the 3rd 2023 and Mark is here as well I hope how, how are you Mark then? I'm great excellent I think we um, had a bit of a chat off air we've had a um, good week both of us haven't we um, we have always 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 nice to have a good week Mark I wish they were all good but um, having a good week certainly um puts a smile on your dial and speaking of smiles on dials mark um emails vetgurus at gmail.com send us an email say hello new listeners old listeners subscribers suggest a topic maybe um, what they always every time chat about yeah every time we get one of those emails it does bring a big smile to our face yes we love our listeners if only they would love us as much, <laughs> And big thanks to all our sponsors, as usual, and our Patreons. And don't forget, Mark, um, we need to get our viewers to visit our Etsy store, E-T-S-Y, and look for Vet Guru's store. Some great gear there. And, uh, you know, my, I must admit, all my Vet Guru's gear market has not fallen apart at all um, compared to a lot of my gear from other places I have bought. And which reminds me, you did purchase, and I haven't purchased one yet, the Vet Guru's biodegradable iPhone cover. Was that I did. I did. I did. I did. Has it degraded yet? It has. I literally have just bought a new cover that because that one um, did start to get a little bit um, soggy around the edges. But I think that's, in, in fairness to the cover, um, I mean, far north Queensland, it's humid up here and everything biodegradable is going to break down at some point. So I don't know that, um, that my experience of it actually reaching the point where it did break down is going to be typical for everyone. And it did last a good year or two, didn't it? Oh, two um, years. Probably two years, two or three yeah. years, yeah. Which is so, probably better than the last plastic one I had. Yes, and you feel good about it, the fact that it broke down. And, um, and if I do you feel bad it, about one thing. I sort of promised myself when I bought it that I would eat it when, um, <laughs> when it reached its state. And I didn't do that, to be honest. It well, was. It did actually get a little bit of mould on it, and I decided not to risk the flavor. toxins. Bit of flavour. You should have. Um, I'm disappointed. Well, the next one, you should have gone back onto the Vet Guru's Etsy site and buy another one, Mark. I'm disappointed with you. Doubly <laughs> now. <laughs> so there you go. There's a little plug for our store. And I think with that, we'll jump into some new stories. I, I might grab the first one if I can pull it up here, Mark. Um, quite an interesting one. Um, reported in Science Daily uh, from a paper in at North Carolina State University in the USA, how studying faeces may help us boost white rhino populations, Mark. So they did a bit of a study on the faeces, obviously, according to the title, of white rhinos in captivity, even though they're not as endangered um, as their little friends. Um, there's a lot of them in captivity. Um, so they wanted to look at the... Um, gut 
microbiome mark um, in them and they got a decent sample size looking at these white rhinos because there's a fair number of them still in, in in captivity they extracted and sequenced the dna from the fecal samples to identify the bacteria in the gut and they found differences mark um, that reproductively successful females had less diversity in the types of microbial species present in their gut when compared to the microbe of reproductively unsuccessful females isn't that interesting and they also, in addition, they found that each group of adults was playing host to species that have previously been associated with reproductive health. The bottom line is that they found significant enrichment of a particular bug in the unsuccessful adults, Mark, and yeah. it was associated, this Mo, Mobiluncus microbes um, were associated with a range of reproductive health problems in a variety of non-rhino species as well. So pretty early sort of um, in the in the process of, of this sort of study, Mark, but but I thought this was quite fascinating that, um, you know, they're trying to work out and, and then track it back down to, you know, um, why they're not being successful, some of the ones um, being re reproduced um, in captivity, Mark, and work out, you know, what the hell's going on and how, how can we fix it? And um, It is fascinating, isn't it? Because what's the mechanism? Yeah. Is, it, is it an infectious one? The bugs are there in the gut and then contaminate the reproductive tract and interfere with fertility or is it something more complicated? Yeah, well, the, the, one of the theories they said, Mark, was that, that the um, they help break down dietary plant compounds, including phytoestrogens, um, well, which are associated with reproductive um, processes, Mark. So, gee, I... It blows my mind with these people who are smart, Mark, and they sort of think laterally with, with these sort of um, prices. So great little study there, Mark. Um, and, and isn't um, it interesting how the uh, the the um, that technology, the way that they just grab a fecal sample and uh, blast it to look at all the DNA and then they can make such... Uh, uh, um, they can interpret and interpolate such significant uh, findings and data just from um, those sequences and identifying, you know, they don't have to go and culture them. They just blast it with the DNA machine and they're, they're in a much better, they have much uh, better information. Yep. Well, Brendan, I don't know if there's any way I can segue neatly to my topic. Um, the article yes, you've I'm chosen going, an interesting one there, Mark. The one I'm going to talk about is... Uh, I'm just going to read the the, um, the title. Scientists thought snakes didn't have clitorises. Uh, they were wrong. And um, and the article does go on to uh, describe, uh, and it surprises me a little bit, Brendan. I thought this would be um, a settled a settled piece of anatomical reference material, but uh, I think it's the case that. Many, through history, I think that many anatomists have been blokes and whether they didn't know where to look or didn't actually look at all, the focus was never on female anatomy to the degree where they would find these things. Anyway, uh, clitorises are found in a wide range of vertebrate life, um, from crocodiles to dolphins, uh, not in birds, which 
um, probably is a, I don't know, an adaptation to lose every single piece of weight that's unnecessary so they can fly. Um, but female snakes uh, had long been thought to fit with birds and uh, had lost the the um, organ in the process of slimming down to be a long tubular uh, animal that um, that uh, had to adapt a lot of its internal anatomy. Um, like lizards, male snakes have paired hemipenes, um, and uh, and you know we know that I know uh, having seen them. Um, our, our blue-tongued lizards here in Australia, the females have a smaller structure, the hemiclitoris, um, but, um, but it had long been considered that, uh, that snakes didn't have them. But um, researcher, oh, just uh, Megan Folwell at the University of Adelaide um, uh, examined euthanized female death adders um, dissecting the tail just to see what she could find. And she was pleasantly surprised to find uh, structures within the cloaca that were completely different to the hemipenes um, in the female snake she dissected. Um, so interestingly enough, these uh, hemiclitoris structures uh, couldn't be uh, everted in lizards, like I mentioned before, the blue tongue, um, uh, they can be turned out much like the male hemipenes, but not so with um, with snakes. So since uh, she's done, since Falwell has done this work, um, there's also been a number of overseas species where they've been identified and a number of um, uh, uh, staining techniques uh, used to identify them. Um, uh, and they, they're little, unsurprising and thin and lay atop the scent glands in the cloaca. So maybe that's part of the reason that they haven't been noted before. Um, they are unsurprisingly well endowed with nerve endings and blood vessels. Um, they do not, um, unlike the hemipenes, they don't have a lot of uh, muscle fibre in them. They're mainly collagen. Um, and now I suppose it's going to be interesting to... Um, to uh, um, try and elucidate a specific role. Why are they there, Brendan? Why do you think they're there? Well, I think they. Well, her her, her postulation is that it's all about. Um, you know, previously it's thought about the male driving the mating, and it may be a little bit closer towards seduction. Mark, according to <laughs> going forward, they want to look out of the nerves in hemiclitoris as they're involved in any touch sensitivity and function during mating. But I think you're spot on in that. That you know, it's the whole. Um, you know, if you don't look, you're not going to find with with a lot of these things. Mark, um, you and I, we've we've spoken a bit about the with crocodilians and the. Um, um, and the um, and some of the big lizard species trying to do the sex identification and looking at the differences between the hemiclitoris and the and the hemipenes and the and you know a bit of a challenge all those techniques of injecting um, contrast agent into the pockets there doing ultrasound um, radiographs to look at the semi you know semi calcified hemi hemipenes versus the hemiclitoris in those, you know, big iguana species, Mark, et cetera. But, um, you know, I'm not surprised that it's sort of a, a there's, there's lot, I reckon there's lots of anatomical structures that, that we just haven't um, 
um, narrowed down or, or, or focused on um, in a lot of our exotics because they're, they're not coming up with disease processes, so people um, are, are not thinking about them. And there is only so much, like, research space and so much to learn about, um, you know, all humans and um, the species that we see more commonly that there's little space given to those exotic species that we see more regularly. Yep, and I think, oh, just... Oh, she summarises it in in her um, the last comment of the article, Mark. It's 2022, which is when this was published, and here's a brand new anatomical finding in a really common animal. Kelly says there's a lot of anatomy that we still don't know yet. Um, so I think that's you know that's I agree 100 percent with that. But yes, um, and we'll link as usual. We will link to. That particular article, as we do to all our articles at vetgurus.com, and you can do a this little search box there. You can search for key items or, or key um, key um, components, including the the types of species, or the um, you could search for reproduction um, or reproductive disease or respiratory disease, and away you go. It'll spit out all the podcasts involved with that particular keyword mark. Um, and speaking of keywords, we're on to part two mark of respiratory diseases in birds because it's a big one it's a big one and um we've we've actually have a bit of a dot point agenda this time <laughs> Crikey's, i'm intimidated by the length of this list brendan yes well you're the one who wanted to talk about it so <laughs> let's um let's get stuck into it so in last week's episode episode 305 we um spoke about the um, basic approach to these respiratory diseases um, in birds. But this week, Mark, we're going to go through a list of, and, and briefly mention some of those common diseases that are seen in pet birds, Mark. Um, and then if we have time, jump into treatment and prevention. And if not, we might cover it in part three next week, Mark. So do you want to jump into some of the common respiratory diseases that we do see in our pet birds? I do. And it's no surprise, Brendan, that there are quite a few, as we talked about last week, the respiratory system of birds is complicated. And so it comes as no surprise that uh, that we can make a dot list that's fairly extensive. And I was going to start with probably the most important, uh, chlamydiosis, a very, very common disease, a disease that we see in a lot of the pet birds that we see, and an important one because, of course, it's a zoonosis. And those of us that work in avian practice will almost invariably have had the experience of, uh, of a client uh, coming down with the disease. And it's an important disease for veterinarians to be aware of because uh, the, of the potential for workplace complications. Um, so uh, the chlamydia sidosi organism um, infects birds uh, with its elemental bodies and it affects systemically um, the, the entire bird. But often the most obvious pathology um, is in the respiratory tract. And so those birds will have um, some difficulty breathing and often um, have uh, ocular and nasal discharge. Um, so any bird that comes in, particularly of the common species, cockatiels, are, are one that we regularly see it in, um, then uh, uh, appropriate 
biosecurity to limit the chance that the infection is transmitted to other birds in the hospital. Of course, making sure that it uh, has virtually no chance of infecting people um, and, uh, and then um, the appropriate tests. Uh, we tend to depend these days more on DNA. We used to do a lot of uh, um, ELISAs to identify chlamydia in birds, but um, we're probably depending more on the DNA tests these days. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's surprising how many of them come back positive, Brendan. Yes. Well, gee, we've got a long list here. Do, do I want to briefly mention the, the clinical signs uh, of these particular diseases as we go through them so we can try and try and separate them a little bit. Sometimes you can't, um, but, but it might hint towards a particular disease um, based on the actual signs. And, and, and species that most commonly they occur in. You mentioned the, the parrot species for chlamydiosis. Are there other particular species that you might say, look, we never see chlamydiosis in this group of birds, Mark? Well, it's one of the diseases that can spread across um, all species, but we definitely see it most commonly in parrots and columbiforms, the pigeons. Um, and pigeons, in my experience, are more commonly associated with the zoonotic form. So um, definitely an important thing to, uh, um, to be aware of those species, but it should be in any practitioner's mind any time they talk, uh, you know, they have a bird that comes in with respiratory disease. Yes, um, but as I said before, uh, the uh, the wild respiratory signs are certainly some of the the most common, particularly the upper respiratory signs, um, the eyes and uh, um, mucoid nasal discharge. Um, the birds will often make a respiratory noise that might be interpreted as a type of cough or or wheeze. Um, they regularly have other system signs uh, that. The classic one is uh, discoloured uh, diarrhoea, dark green or even lime green diarrhoea. Um, they uh, are systemically ill. They go off their food. They often become very um, uh, uh, immobile, moribund. Um, and certainly uh, chlamydia is uh, recognised, you know, it's dangerous enough that it can kill birds and people for that matter. Um, so uh, very serious disease, systemic signs, Mainly upper respiratory tract signs, um, uh, mucoid to to uh, uh, generally mucoid, a little uh, oculonasal discharge. They're the things that I'd be immediately worried about. A bird that had dark green droppings and mucus uh, coming from its nostrils, I'd be testing for chlamydia. Yes. Excellent summary. Next one, Mark. What's our... Another. Well, the next one is um, a, a physical problem, um, and it tends to be, uh, it may well present uh, in some ways similar to chlamydia. The, there may be a respiratory noise and there may be um, some uh, uh, nasal discharge. Um, and the nasal discharge with rhinoliths tends to be more uh, evident as discoloration of those feathers around the nose. It's fine aerosolized fluid that uh, uh, um, touches those feathers and makes them uh, uh, damp and often with a little bit of mucus they become discolored and um, and of course there's a respiratory noise associated with the altered airflow in the nose so these are interesting structures Brendan because they essentially are a combination of 
um, an irritant material. Uh, that may be something like uh, pollen or dust um, enters the nasal cavity um, uh, and excess mucus is produced. Now, most of the time, that combination of mucus and foreign body will be uh, the normal processes will mean that it is blown out of the nose, like any booger that we get. Um, but in many birds, the the um, structure of the nares and the enlarged uh, intranasal space and the sinuses around there mean that it's possible for these structures to get bigger than the hole they came in on. Um, and when that happens, uh, they can lodge in there. And they may be adhered to a wall of the nasal cavity or they may be literally free floating in there um, and they the birds seem in my experience to be exceptionally tolerant of, of them um, yeah. and they'll uh, not have the, the you know the systemic signs that we might see with a bird that has chlamydia um, and but they will uh, sometimes get to the point where the nasal structures uh, become deformed by the the altered anatomy and size of the that's induced by the the rhinolith. So having a getting a scope and having a good look in that nostril and just uh, making sure that you can see that everything's normal. And if it's not, um, then I often find a, a gentle restraint and a, a maybe a, a toothpick, uh, something that's um, that's. Uh, not going to like pierce the structures of the nose, um, something that's a little Bluntish. bit flexible. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and just uh, tickle the structures in there carefully, ensuring the bird can't suddenly move its head forward onto whatever probe you're using. Um, and you can often, first of all, recognize the asymmetry um, that they're, even if there's rhinoliths in both nostrils, they won't look the same usually. Um, and unusual movement of that structure within the nostril um, tends to to uh, let you know that things are, are different. There'll often be the airflow around the rhinolith will often change the shape of the nostril. It'll stretch and get bigger. Um, and, uh, and so... Uh, um, you can often detect an asymmetry in the size of the nostril. Um, in the majority of instances, um, uh, you're able to fiddle around and, and get the rhinolith out. But sometimes you need to uh, consider a longer-term approach where you're humidifying the bird's area to soften the thing, and it may even have to come out piecemeal and, and on occasions uh, taking advantage of an anaesthetic to have a compliant bird for you to fiddle around in its nasal passages, Brendan. Now, how satisfying are they to pop out one of those rhinolids, Mark? They are, ex like most things like that, um, I think it would be, you could almost have a, a TikTok channel dedicated to <laughs> the satisfaction associated with popping out rhinolids. Mark and the rhinolids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay, next one, Mark. What else have we got? We've got chlamydiosis, rhinolith, um, completely oh, different. Asper. I think we've done a, a you yes. can correct me, yeah, we've done a, a, a podcast on aspergillosis um, uh, and any discussion of respiratory disease in birds would be remiss if it, it didn't mention this. Um, and it's interesting because as we talk about in our podcast, aspergillus spores are everywhere, like literally um, in any 
uh, temperate or tropical environment, if you sampled the air, you would find uh, spores. And so they're breathed in by literally every organism all the time. And the routine uh, health of the respiratory tract means that um, in the majority of instances, they're breathed in, they go all the way down, and then laminar flow and protective mechanisms mean that they don't get a foothold, and most of the time they're breathed back out. But in compromised patients, uh, um, those aspergillus spores will uh, get it, will land on the mucosa at some point, uh, begin their growth um, out, do the body's defences, um, and set up little fungal growths within the body, which become fungal granulomas of significant mass. And um, and the worst part about them, Brendan, is that all this long course of events leading up to the point where you have a fungal granuloma, uh, the bird will might lose some weight and go off its food a tiny bit, but most even diligent owners might not know um, that their bird has a relatively serious illness um, until there's a significant uh, granuloma to deal with and um, um, ventilation is significantly compromised. Yes, nasty little buggers. (laughs) Next one, Mark. Pneumonia. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about the... the, um, Did you have a thought about pneumonia? What made you put it on the dot list? Well, no, I... I I like to throw in some interesting ones. Um, some yeah, I want you to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I the way I think about pneumonia in uh, in birds is that um, it a, um, a severe in, inflammatory reaction of the respiratory tissues of the lungs and the 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 air sacs, and that's probably the take-home message in any discussion I would have about pneumonia in birds is that um, is that those systems are connected, uh, and you you regular you can have one or the other. There are uh, circumstances where it's possible to have something that's limited to one or the other, uh, but an infection that leads to a severe respiratory tissue inflammation. Uh, lower respiratory uh, tract inflammation um, that is very likely to affect the the both the uh, lungs and the air sacs. Now, the significance of this, Brendan, is that the lungs are very difficult uh, um, areas to get lots of information about. Um, they're they're deep in the the thoracic cavity, thoracic part of the salomic cavity. And it's not easy to get, you know, uh, bronchovalar lavage is not a, a, a suitable practice. You're not going to be able to uh, stick needles in there and get samples. But because those, the air sacs and the lungs are continuous, you can get significant um, samples from those air sacs and they are relatively easy to access. So, so that would be my take-home message that, um, in cases where pneumonia is an issue, where inflammation um, and exudate of the respiratory tract is causing the bird's problem, um, you can get suitable samples from the the uh, easily accessed uh, air sacs. So are you saying that pneumonia is 
underdiagnosed or overdiagnosed or just forgotten about with respiratory diseases in birds? Well, I think I think that uh, pneumonia classifies a uh, you know a pathologic process. Um, the inflammation uh, that's associated with respiratory tissue, the lungs and the air sacs, and that there's a whole lot of diseases that can cause that. Yes. So, so people tend yes. to focus on the disease and not the process. Yes. So let me narrow it down a bit. I'm back, like, back, I'm back like a sad student who... Bacter <laughs> bacterial pneumonia, Mark. Tell me yep. about bacterial... If we, if we narrow it down to bacterial pneumonias, how common do, do you think They're they are? They're pretty bloody common, I think. Um, I think that um, that uh, because of the complexity of the respiratory tract, because of the prevalence of novel bugs in pet birds' environments, um, because often the environment, maybe in an aviary or a house, is uh, not uh, commensurate with the uh, the environment the bird has evolved in. And the classic one there is um, uh, birds like Eclectus parrots, which... Uh, have evolved to deal with the high, high humidity of the area that I'm in at the moment, um, and then they go into a house where, like in the wild, that that uh, the humidity in in um, in their natural environment might never ever go below sixty percent, and in a home, um, they'll they'll be uh, exposed to humidities, you know, down around twenty percent, almost invariably. So I think that. Um, those environmental circumstances weaken the immune system and make a secondary bacterial pneumonia is very, very common in birds. Excellent reply, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> what about viral respiratory infections? Well, they're pretty common too. And, um, and I'm particularly interested in um, a few of them because they have conservation consequences. Um, and uh, for a short period of time, I was involved in some survey work in Newcastle, which looked at the incidence of uh, avian influenza in, in our uh, wildfowl, in the waterfowl in particular. Um, and they spend time, of course, with wild birds that have flown from uh, um, Siberia from up near the Arctic Circle each year. So there's a, that East Asian avenue of migration that many of our uh, water birds undertake, and many of our shorebirds undertake, um, provides a direct access for uh, viruses like avian influenza to get into um, into our country. And, and surveying those birds is uh, done on a regular basis. So I am, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a, a thing that plays on my mind quite a lot. Mm. So <laughs> now you want to know about um, <laughs> clinical signs and how it, um, yes. the other thing that's important about it and why those surveys are done is that um, our domestic birds that are farmed, particularly chickens, are, are susceptible to it. Now the disease can play a role in humans, um, but geez, it um, it can cause uh, huge cost uh, increases and huge uh, losses in production um, in our farmed chickens, and so um, that it's a critical role. It uh, plays a critical role in that stuff. So yeah, it, it's uppermost in almost everyone who works with birds. We uh, we play we 
play a fair bit of um, thought to uh, um, avian influenza. Yep. It's a whole podcast series on its own, isn't it, I think? What have we got next, Mark? Uh, gee, that we've that was a very short um, summary of viral. Um, what it, let's I think you're right. That, I think yeah. I'd be keen to uh, expand that I, into I think... an entire podcast. So the next one is um, uh, that I'd talk about. Uh, it sort of fits with the rhinolith story that um, we do see a number of um, uh, foreign bodies work their way into the trachea, and I wanted to mention those because, uh, unlike the rhinolith, they're distressing the birds that you see with uh, tracheal foreign bodies uh, are, um, they are, are very distressed um, and the interesting thing is that um, seeds uh, a number of the toys a number of um, ornaments in cages can be just the right size um, to slip into the glottis and get into the trachea and in birds the trachea narrows very slightly as it uh, as it gets further down the neck, and um, and so something can slide down there, have a little bit of space around it um, to allow air to pass, but then gradually as the bird moves, work its way further and further down until it closes off the airway. Yeah. Um, and so it's no wonder that such birds are, are presented um, dyspneic in the extreme and, and uh, are physically distressed. Um, it is, of course, an emergency because the birds can suffocate very quickly. And so it's one of those situations where we uh, try not to stress them. We try not to increase their uh, ventilatory rates or efforts so that they don't push anything further down. Um, we might make some uh, relatively trivial um, attempts to see if we can see. We want to be quick and not stress the bird. So um, uh, holding the bird in such a way where the head is dependent for a short period of time and putting a, making sure the crop's not full so they don't regurge um, and putting a bright light and transilluminating the trachea to see what you can see. Um, and sometimes that altered body position can be enough to move the, the foreign body orally, but often not. And once you've identified that you think there's a significant chance that that's the case, then um, uh, establishing an air sac cannula so the bird has an alternate way to breathe buys you significant time to then formulate a plan to get that foreign body out. Yes, emergencies, foreign bodies, Mark. What's uh, the next one on the list um, potentially? Oh, there's a, little a bit related. Of, yeah. Well, there are a number of... Um, uh, parasites yes. who use the respiratory tract in various stages. Um, all of us who uh, have worked with magpies will see um, those uh, uh, worms that uh, occupy the pharynx in the first part of the trachea uh, to cause respiratory problems. And um, gateworm in our poultry will definitely give you some uh, serious reason for concern. But across many species, there are parasites that uh, spend part of their time in the respiratory tract. Um, and they d definitely, because we're conscious of the viruses and chlamydia, um, they definitely fall down the list a little bit. Um, and oftentimes uh, the, the direct evidence of their presence in the respiratory tract is hard to establish. And so doing a complete workup that includes assessment of the parasites that might be in the stools, for example, um, that's an important part of a workup for respiratory case 
uh, respiratory tract problems that uh, the immediate cause is not apparent for. Yes. Now let's head off on a slightly different direction, Mark, non-infectious respiratory disease. And uh, the big one that jumps out, that is not as much of a problem these days as it was when in the dark ages when I graduated, um, is uh, dietary issues, particularly things like uh, vitamin A deficiency. So many of the diets that uh, that were fed to birds when I was a very recent graduate um, were deficient in vitamin A. This would lead to uh, mucosal uh, um, uh, 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 dysplasia. Um, the mucosa of the respiratory tract in particular would not be uh, healthy or formed normally. Yep. It would often be the development of plaque-like structures uh, in the mucosa um, and, uh, and, and even altered structure. So some of the papillae or uh, things that might protect the respiratory tract wouldn't form normally. Um, there's also some uh, that Things like vitamin A can play a role in the way that the glottis might uh, exclude things from getting into the, the respiratory tract. So vitamin A deficiency was a very common problem and caused a lot of respiratory issues. Uh, fortunately, most of the, the commercial diets now are adequately fortified with vitamin A. Uh, but I think uh, like any of the fat-soluble vitamins, um, even products that are uh, fortified can have the uh, vitamin breakdown. And so people need to keep in mind uh, the role that vitamin A could play um, and just maybe do a little bit more analysis. And of course, there's going to be some people who feed old-fashioned diets and so still have birds that uh, potentially could be exposed to those same diets that uh, were deficient in vitamin A. Excellent point, Mark. Points, points, excellent points. What else do we have? Oh, I wanted to touch on a very uh, important one. Um, the presence, uh, because a lot of the birds that we get to, the pet birds that we get to see, well, these days free roam around the house. Um, they can get uh, 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 to the kitchen and some of the fumes, particularly those uh, non-stick frying pans and the uh, 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 fluoride compounds that, uh, that well, we assume... Uh, come from those uh, those non-stick pans in certain circumstances, um, uh, the respiratory tract of birds is exquisitely sensitive to those compounds if they are in the air, um, and they can trigger, well, a fatal uh, respiratory tract hemorrhage. But in less uh, severe circumstances, they can produce uh, quite severe respiratory tract problems. So uh, toxins like... Uh, uh, volatile fluoride toxicity coming from uh, non-stick pans, non-stick surfaces, um, is something to keep in mind when you're doing that history, asking those questions that might lead you to a, uh, uh, that diagnosis. Is That history taking is critically important. Like the foreign body birds, these birds are um, the, the, they're in distress. They are not able to transfer sufficient uh, oxygen to the blood and they are really um, uh, feel like they're suffocating um, yeah. and uh, and they need aggressive supportive care. There's no specific 
antidotal treatment, but um, uh, ensuring the birds aren't going to bleed any more than they than they need to. Um, uh, maybe using some of the clot promoting um, uh, um, uh, medications that we have at our hand, and putting them in a, a, a stress free, oxygen enriched environment um, are about the most important. Uh, supportive care things that you can do for these birds. And I think that introduces one of the last little dot points, Mark, um, uh, and you've already introduced it, a, a <laughs> summary of the treatment of these. And, and we have some vastly different causes of these respiratory diseases, but do you just want to do a little bit of a summary on on treatment protocols? And, uh, well, a couple of general... And- a couple yeah. of general principles, I think. Um, I think any time that a bird comes in, we talked about um, tail bobbing last podcast, and any time a bird comes in and there is apparent signs of a respiratory disease, those birds are already significantly compromised. And so uh, yep. maybe... Uh, um, I mean, I've done it myself, Brendan. I've been so focused on getting the job done that um, I've uh, uh, grabbed a bird and and um, started to do the work up, um, started to put my stethoscope in place and, um, and had the bird um, collapse. And it was only good fortune that we could get it into an oxygen-rich environment that we're able to save its life. Um, and so I think always just being conscious that you are very close to that point of decompensation with these birds and um, and it's, you know, speed going slowly but going fast at the same time. You need to um, take your time, make sure that the bird is not decompensating, um, do your diagnostics stepwise and logically without stressing the bird, um, and take advantage. You know, we've talked before about uh, uh, the, some of the things that might be useful to have in a practice that deals with avians and exotics and some form of cage, and it can be as simple as a, a you know, a, a plastic box that you bought at the dollar store, one of those op- uh, translucent plastic boxes with a hole and an uh, oxygen uh, hose connected to it, um, but some form of oxygen-enriched environment makes a huge difference for all these birds that have uh, yeah. respiratory disease. Yes, having a, these days having a, specific intensive care unit mark um, that can provide oxygen is fairly common isn't it and they're 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 not uh prohibitively expensive um bits of kit um and yeah most practices that deal with exotic animals are going to have that dedicated uh um enclosure hospital ward hospital enclosure that uh, they can pop these birds into um, keep them warm keep them uh, appropriately uh, humidified and uh, of course provide the oxygen and do you commence any specific or, or general medications with these while you're awaiting the the confirmation of your suspected diagnosis um that's a good question i i when you put the dot points down, I thought about that specifically, and I probably don't, uh, unless I have a clear, you know, my temptation is to consider using some anti-inflammatory medication, or uh, if I suspect the 
uh, secondary bacterial infection and antibiotic. But until I've got a clear answer, I don't. I might be tempted in some of the more distressed birds to um, uh, to hit them with a, a low dose of midazolam or diazepam to in an attempt to relieve their anxiety because I do think they get into a bit of a, a downward spiral being more anxious, requiring more ox oxygen, not being able to supply it, getting more anxious. Um, and so trying to break that cycle is probably the, the one thing that I would consider doing um, at the earlier stage. Yep. Um, it's a bit, the, uh, I, in many other instances, I might administer, um, particularly metazolam, uh, there's a, a, has a track record now of uh, intranasal administration. Um, in other circumstances, but I would be just giving the bird an injection and getting it into oxygen as quickly as I could to try and calm it down. Yep, excellent. Well, we've run through a lot of a lot of common and perhaps not so common respiratory diseases that we see in birds, Mark, very quickly, and I know we'll need to cover some of these in their own little podcast. In the future, do you have any sort of final thoughts, Mark, on this summary of respiratory diseases in birds? The one final thought I would offer is um, is that ventilation is critically important. When you're keeping birds in general in aviaries or houses, um, they're used to fresh air all the time. And there's no doubt that uh, inadequate ventilation is a very common predisposing factor in the development of many of these uh, disease processes. So I would just put it in people's minds that if they're doing an annual physical examination on a bird, one of the questions at some point to the client might be just to discuss ventilation and what arrangements the clients have to maximise that without stressing the birds. Um, because I think that's one of the primary preventative care things. Um, and with that talk of ventilation, I'll leave it to you to finish. Well done, Mark. As usual, you've nailed it. Talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.